0: Hey, welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind. My name is Robert Lamb. And I'm Joe McCormick, and we are revisiting a yearly
1: tradition. That's right. Uh, every year, pretty much about this time, we look and see what was honored at this year's Ig Nobel Prizes. Uh, the, the prizes themselves come out, I believe, at the, the end of September or the very beginning of October.
0: Bad but, timing for us. Yeah,
1: because that's when we want to get into our Halloween content, and so we always do. We just steamroll ahead into the Halloween content, and then afterwards... Uh, you know, after especially after the dust has sort of settled on the Ig Nobel Prizes, the, the mainstream media coverage uh, of the event has died away. Then we come back, and we, we pick through the winners, and sometimes we cover absolutely everything. Uh, sometimes we cover a few choice selections here and there, and that's going to be the model we're going to be employing here.
0: Yeah, we're just going to take a look at a few highlights that stuck out to us. So uh, for those who haven't heard before, Quick uh, refresher on the Ig Nobel's. Yeah, they've been awarded each year
1: since 1991 uh, by the publication, uh, the Annals of Improbable Research. Uh, the purpose of the award, according to the editors of Improbable Research, is to quote honor achievements that first make people laugh and then make them think. Uh, furthermore, they stress that the ten prizes aren't necessarily meant to pass judgment on the winners. Instead, the official website emphasizes that the prizes quote celebrate the unusual, honor the imaginative. And spur people's interest in science, medicine, and technology, and the principal individual here is editor Mark Abrams, so yeah, every year it is just a it's you know it's making fun of the idea a little bit of the the Nobel prizes mm-hmm. uh, which which celebrate you know Key advancements and, and and key examples of work that are really pushing forward our, our understanding of ourselves and the universe and nature. And the Ig Nobel Prizes tend to highlight more absurd entries, uh, but not, not necessarily entries that are, you know, that are completely useless. And I think that's an important thing to stress, and something we've tried to stress in the past when covering the event is that studies that are honored by the Ig Nobel Prizes maybe snicker-inducing, they may seem a little silly at first glance, but they're all works of, of real science, of real ingenuity. And if nothing else, they are helping to expand the the, the threshold of human understanding.
0: Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, I think one of our favorite things to explore on this show is realizing that there's an interesting question in a place you wouldn't have expected to find it. And that's what a lot of this research does. And so on that note,
1: let us turn to uh, the first Ig Nobel Prize winning study that uh, we would like to highlight here today. And that is the 2019 award winner uh, in physics awarded to Patricia Yang et al. for studying how and why wombats make cube-shaped poop. Wombats are so cute. They are they are they are so adorable to look at. I mean obviously the babies any baby animal is going to be adorable. But even the adults look like living
0: teddy bear creatures, like mm-hmm. living teddy bear marsupials. I bet they're just nightmarish, you know. Given no, how cute they no. are, I'm sure they kill thousands of people every year.
1: No. Uh, I mean, to be <laughs> to be clear, they can protect themselves and sometimes they do harm humans if provoked or I think there have been cases where like there was a, a wombat that had uh, the mange or something like that and was therefore a little more agitated. So, yes, they're they can they are kind of tough customers in their own right. Own right. They're not straight up wolverines or anything, but uh, they can they can look after themselves. So this particular uh, paper, How Do Wombats Make Cubed Poo?, uh, this came. This was presented at the 71st Annual uh, Meeting of the APS Division of Fluid Dynamics, and I believe this was presented uh, in Atlanta, Georgia, where, of course, we record the show.
0: Yeah, I think at least part of the team is uh, Georgia Tech, right?
1: Yeah. Yeah. So the, the species here, Vombatus ursinus, is a pudgy herbivore roughly the size of a Kind of a thick dog, like okay. a really thick dog,, uh-huh. uh, and it 's a marsupial. Uh, they have pouches, but since they 're burrowers, they have backward pouches so as not to fill the pouch up with dirt and endanger the young one that may be within the
0: pouch oh, interesting, so like if they 're pulling themselves forward on their belly through the dirt, the, the, uh, the, the dirt does not go in right, yeah, because we can all imagine the cartoon scenario of it just filling up with
1: dirt, right right. They have a slow metabolism. They feed mostly on grasses and roots, and they're largely nocturnal or crepuscular, you know, so they're gonna, you know, they're not gonna venture out usually in the brightest light of the day. They may come out though on particularly overcast days. And they can, again, they can put up a fight if threatened, and you'll find them in Australia and in Tasmania. They're cute. They're not endangered uh, despite being treated by, as vermin by some farmers. And oh, I love this. Groups of wombats are, are sometimes called a mob, sometimes just called a group. But sometimes they're also known as a wisdom of
0: wombats. Oh, man, that's better than a murder of crows. That is. What? I
1: mean, just imagine yeah, these, these wise, uh, cute uh, elder wombats that have so so much wisdom to share with the world. I don't mean
0: to be mean, but they don't necessarily look wise. They do look cute. <laughs> They look more clever than wise well what would you what would you refer to them as a, like a snuggle of wombats? Uh, it would be a snuggie of wombats that 's pretty good or a slanket of wombats a
1: slanket of wombats. I like that, but one of the more puzzling attributes of the wombat has long been their poop because it is cubic, and we 're not talking necessarily perfectly cubic in a geometri- ge- geometrical sense. But yet for a world mostly devoid, pretty much completely devoid of natural squares, certainly natural biological squares, this
0: is pretty darn cubic. Yeah, totally. I mean, if you come across these things in nature, you would think they were made by humans. Yeah. They look kind of like
1: chocolate marshmallows, like really square chocolate marshmallows, (laughs) Uh if you see a picture of them.
0: Yeah. Uh, Not the cylindrical marshmallows, like the more old school, like carved out ones with corners.
1: Granted, I think the image that we're both looking at here, they're dried a little bit. But Uh still, even fresh uh, out the shoot, they are cubic in nature.
0: It is really hard to imagine how these things are made. Just I mean, I don't know how much time one wants to spend contemplating a wombat anus, but like – it just doesn't seem like a normal thing that would emerge physically from a what I would assume to be rounded anus.
1: Well, the wombat anus is not immune from the, the inquiry of science. And that's where Yang and her team come in. Uh, and again, yeah, Yang is local based out of the School of Mechanical Engineering at Georgia Tech where she's a postdoctoral fellow. Uh, so since she's local, maybe we should have her on the, on the show because she's not just a one-time Ig Nobel winner. She's a two-time Ig Nobel winner because she and co-author David Hu – also shared the 2015 Ig Nobel Physics Prize for testing the biological principle that nearly all mammals empty their bladders in about 21 seconds, plus or minus 13 seconds.
0: I don't know. The plus or minus 13 seconds buys you a pretty big window there. But yeah, I find myself very often thinking about this one in the bathroom. (laughs) (laughs) So –
1: Having turned away from the world of urine, the researchers were interested by this puzzle of the the wombat poop. So they looked at how differences in wombat's digestive processes and soft tissue structures informed this curious structure. So they investigated. They used uh, the digestive tracts of wombats that had been euthanized following motor vehicle collisions in Tasmania. Oh, uh, So have to, you have to have some actual bodies to look at there. And it right. seems like a reasonable way to go about getting them. They found that the shape occurred towards the very end of the intestines as the matter became increasingly firm. It became clear that, quote, varying elastic properties of wombats' intestinal walls allowed for the cubic formation.
0: Hmm.
1: And the result is a cube, the only organic cube in nature, they say, and it's not made. Yang stresses by the two typical human methods of creating cubes. We, because uh, we tend to mold a cube or we cut a cube, right? We slice a cube out of something via um, you know subtractive manufacturing. Mm-hmm. But this is a third way. This is the way of the wombat, uh, where it is uh, it is it is formed uh, through the you know the excretion uh, process uh, of uh, the lower intestine. So this would be not cutting a cube, not molding a cube, maybe pinching a cube. Yeah, pinching a cube and then excreting a cube. Now, you're probably wondering, well, what is the why of all of this, right? If the wombat is doing something entirely different with its poop, there has to be a reason. Well, scientists believe it comes down to the fact that these burrowing nocturnal herbivores depend largely on their sense of smell. They largely communicate by smell, and therefore, like various other animals that are also smell-dependent, their fecal matter is their calling card. Uh, I mean, you, you have a dog, you know, mm-hmm. uh, how, how they behave, the, the sort of the, the, uh, the, the heightened importance of fecal matter in the dog world.
0: Yeah, out on a walk in the neighborhood, poop is like a Facebook status update. It's yeah. like, you know, the, you're interested, you want to check it out. Like,
1: we just see something we don't want to step in. Maybe the, the, the sense data there is just telling us not to step in it. Mm-hmm. But to a dog with heightened, far heightened sensibilities, there's a lot of data in the sense emerging from that poop. It's interesting stuff. And so while something, like a ki- while something like a cat hides its poop because it doesn't want to be known to either its many prey animals or its many predators, wombats are a different matter. Today, wombats don't have many natural predators, uh, so certainly adult wombats, and they use their piled feces to mark territory and to communicate with other wombats, and, so, and they don't live on a prairie. Uh, they are ups and downs to the topography of their natural habitat. And placing their poops at higher elev- elevations, such as atop some rocks, at- on top of a log, or on a ledge, it makes it stand out more visually to other wombats. And again, they don't have great a uh, great uh, you know, uh, uh, sense of sight, but still, you put it up there on a ledge. More wombats are able to see it, and then the wombats can come in and take a more uh, informed uh, smell of the wombat poop and learn something about uh, about its maker
0: so the wombat rectum is sort of designed by evolution to create poop monuments, yeah, like testaments to the will of the wombat that occupies this territory. Poop
1: that stays put, uh-huh. basically, uh, which is, uh, interestingly, uh, quite the exact opposite of the round goat feces mm-hmm. that uh, many of you have probably seen emerging from uh, the rear end of a goat, uh, which is believed to have evolved to roll downhill and essentially self-hide in hilly or mountainous
0: terrain. So as better maybe to throw off a, a, a cougar that could be pursuing you or something. Right,
1: yeah. Like for the goat, it's better that the poop just gets lost. Uh-huh. Uh, but for the wombat, the wombat has very specific needs- uh, they require the, the, the poop to remain in sight and to be found. And, uh, and so, yeah, it's basically with the wombats, it's, it's highly adaptive to be able to uh, poop cubes that stay put. It's part of their language of, of expression. Now, uh, naturally, there are potential biomimetic possibilities here. In the future, Yang says, we might see human-created cubes produced not by molding or cutting but by this sort of excretion. So I can't help but wonder if this will be the future of our Valentine's Day chocolates.
0: Oh yes, like a like a mechanical uh, industrial anus for pooping out chocolate in exactly that shape. Exactly, delicious.
1: So that's the physics prize, and uh, yeah, I I just love this story because well, wombats are such interesting creatures, mm-hmm. and and this is ultimately extremely insightful. Like this is this is not this is something that yes, it's laughable because it's poop poop from a cute marsupial, mm-hmm. but on the other hand, it's it really. It illustrates something amazing about evolution and, uh, and also highlights where we might go in the future when it comes to making cubicle candy. Uh, and if you want to learn more about this, uh, Patricia Yang also has a website, patriciayang.net.
0: Excellent. Well, maybe we should take a quick break and then when we come back, we can talk about dirty money. Hey everybody, with all the recent
1: news about online security breaches, it's hard not to worry about where your data goes. Making an online purchase or simply accessing your email could put your private information at risk. You're being tracked online by social media sites, marketing companies, and your mobile or internet provider. Not only can they record your browsing history, but they often sell it to other corporations who want to profit from your information. And that's why you should decide to to take back your
0: privacy by using ExpressVPN. That's right. ExpressVPN has easy-to-use apps that run seamlessly in the background on my computer, phone, or tablet. Turning on ExpressVPN protection takes only one click. ExpressVPN secures and anonymizes your internet browsing by encrypting your data and hiding your public IP address. Protecting yourself with ExpressVPN costs less than $7 a month. ExpressVPN is rated number one VPN service by TechRadar and comes with a 30-day money-back guarantee. So if you ever use public Wi-Fi and want to keep hackers and spies from seeing your data, ExpressVPN is the solution. And if you don't want to hand over your online history to your internet provider or data resellers, ExpressVPN is the answer. So protect your online
1: activity today and find out how you can get three months free at expressvpn.com mindblown. That's E-X-P-R-E-S-S-V-P-N dot com slash mindblown for three months free with a one-year package. Visit expressvpn.com slash mindblown to learn more.
0: All right, we're back. Dirty money. Mm-hmm. This is this year's economics prize uh, for the Igno Bells. This went to Habib Gadek, Timothy A. Voss, and Andreas Voss uh, for testing which country's paper money is best at transmitting dangerous bacteria. The paper was called Money and Transmission of Bacteria in Antimicrobial Resistance and Infection Control in 2013. And so the authors here start out with a pretty obvious fact. Cash gets handled a lot. It changes hands. You touch it. I touch it. Tom Atkins probably touched it. Ted goes to the bathroom and then he touches it. You sneeze. Then you handle it. Then you pay for your lunch with it. Somebody pays me the gambling debts they owe me with that same money. It seems like a pretty obvious vector for disease transmission.
1: Yeah. When you were a kid, you probably heard this. And if you, like me, are a parent,
0: you've probably said this. Don't put that money in your mouth. It's it's <laughs> filthy. Right. Uh, I mean, for some reason when I was reading about this research, the thing that kept popping into my mind is that episode of Parks and Recreation where you find out that all the Pawnee citizens drink from water <laughs> fountains by putting their mouth over oh, the the, I, the fountain part. I had
1: completely forgotten about this until you mentioned it. <laughs> yeah. Uh, there was also a skit from the Upright Citizens Brigade that right. comes to mind.
0: Yes, uh, that we can't go into full detail about here. But, uh you can probably figure it out. Look yeah, it
1: somebody who chose to pay for things with befouled pennies that they themselves had intentionally befouled.
0: Right. But as we know, not all physical substrata are equally hospitable to germs. So the authors here tested different national currencies to see how well they transmitted various multi-drug resistant bacteria, including methicillin-resistant Staphylococcus aureus, or MRSA, uh, an extended spectrum of beta-lactyls lactamases producing E. coli and vancomycin resistant uh, enterococci or VRE. So uh, here's the method. The author's got a bunch of different banknotes from different countries, including the Euro, the US dollar, Canadian dollar, the Croatian kuna, the Romanian lu, the Moroccan dirham, and the Indian rupee. And they first, of course, started off sterilizing the cash with UV radiation. You don't want to bring in any pre existing germs. Right. Uh, then they inoculated the money with incubated strains of the bacteria they were testing. And then the cash was left out to dry for several lengths of time, I think three hours, six hours, and 24 hours. And then the experimenters tested which banknotes allowed bacterial colonies to survive after the various drying periods. And then in the second experiment, they also tested the effects of people rubbing the banknotes with sanitized hands. Would... The uh, Would the bacteria transfer from the infected banknotes to people's hands? So, which money came out on top? Well, the Romanian loo was one of the most germ-friendly. It yielded all three drug-resistant pathogens after three and six hours of drying. And it was the only currency that still had a pathogen after a full day of drying. And that hmm. pathogen was VRE. The Canadian and U.S. dollar yielded only MRSA. So I assume it's the U.S. money that Scrooge McDuck swims through in his vault.
1: Oh, well, maybe he had it uh, purified, you know, because I've always heard
0: that Scrooge McDuck was actually a bit of a germaphobe. Oh, yeah? Yeah. Take after Howard Hughes? Yeah. Yeah. Okay, so the euro yielded only the E. coli strain after three and six hours and VRE after three hours. The rupee, only VRE. The Croatian Kuna did not yield Any of the pathogens at any period. So, in the second stage of the experiment, they studied the transmission of bacteria from banknotes to hands after rubbing. The euro did not transmit bacteria to hands, but the U.S. dollar and the Romanian leu did. Mm. Oh, and they make sure to point out that all the money was sterilized with UV radiation after the testing, so it it was safe to return (laughs) to circulation. Uh, And the authors also point out that uh, uh, this means that the type of banknote paper in circulation could have epidemiological implications. They think major variables here are probably like the materials used in creating the fiber of the banknotes. The Romanian loo, for instance, which seemed to be the most germ-friendly, has plastic content that is designed to improve durability and make it harder to counterfeit. But it also seems to create a more pathogen-friendly environment that many of the other fibers and materials uh, used in paper money don't create.
1: So this would be like the when we've, if you've ever handled currency that basically has like little clear plastic windows in it,
0: uh, yeah, it could be that or it could be more spread out throughout okay. – I don't know exactly what's going on with the Romanian lube. But it has polymer content that apparently is, is germ-friendly uh, or even you know not just germ-friendly but like uh, antibiotic-resistant <laughs> germ-friendly. But the Croatian kuna, you can take that and just stick it directly in your mouth. Uh, No, I, I mean, I wouldn't recommend that, but it seems like in this particular test, the Kuna turned out very well. So maybe this is something other countries should consider and test out when designing the next generation of paper notes. Maybe take some inspiration from how the Croatian Kuna is made. It seems to be an inhospitable environment for all of the pathogens tested. I don't know if this is something that has ever even figured into currency design before. Have like yeah. they ever considered how well currency transmits bacteria and just how
1: gross money is? Yeah. I mean granted there is less of it that is used on a daily basis for many populations mm-hmm. uh, you know using our cards more often electronic payments etc but still there's a lot of cash out there and it's troubling to think about how you know how dirty it is that you get sick from money uh, you know not enough spiritual sense, which I think we're all accustomed to, but in, a, in, an, in an actual
0: uh, biological sense. You know, even if it's Kuna, I just say don't put money in your mouth. Don't put it in there. Uh, okay, so also I wanted to talk about one, not for a long time, just a, a quick look at the 2019 Anatomy Prize, which was uh, awarded to Roger Muset and uh, Boris Bingudufa for measuring scrotal temperature asymmetry in naked and clothed postmen in France. And it's not just <laughs> postmen. This they, they study bus drivers too and then people whose professions you don't even know. Uh, the original research was published in the journal Human Reproduction in 2007. So – Humans are mammals showing bilaterally symmetrical anatomy. If you split us in half lengthwise, you will mostly see the halves as mirror images of one another. But we're not perfect examples of bilateral symmetry. You've got internal organs that are oriented off-center. Maybe the heart is a little more to one side, the liver more to the other, and so forth. Uh, And apparently this extends to some aspects of the human scrotum. So the authors here begin by noting a discrepancy in the anatomical literature. Is the human scrotum on average hotter on one side than the other? Uh, Some previous reports said that it's equally hot on both sides, while others reported that the left side of the scrotum is generally hotter than the right.
1: Interesting. And of course, this comes down to the fact that, of course, on one side is one testicle on the other side is the other testicle. And of course part of the whole uh, uh, design of, uh, of the testicles has to do with the fact that th- there's, a, there's an importance of maintaining certain temperatures.
0: Absolutely. I mean, this is highly reproductively significant information. Temperature of the male reproductive organs plays a role in gamete production and thus in fertility. So in fact, the major biological purpose of the scrotum, as you alluded to, seems to be thermoregulation, to move the testicles near or away from the body to help keep them as close to optimal temperature as possible
1: yeah this is why sometimes if, if uh, fertility doctors may ask okay are you um, are you going to a hot tub all the time yeah do you have a really hot laptop setting mm. on your lap a lot right uh, you know these sorts of questions because
0: uh, you know they are susceptible to uh, to outside temperatures exactly so the authors here wanted to get new data to help clear up these discrepant reports and so their methods were quote Retrospective analyses of scrotal temperatures in men aged 20 to 52 years measured every two minutes with probes connected to a data collector in three experiments. So, three different experiments. They tested this out both naked and clothed in a number of different body positions. They also tested it on, yes, postal workers who (laughs) were working in a standing position for 90 minutes at a time. And they also tested it out on bus drivers who were working in a sitting position for 90 minutes at a time, and they found that especially in the clothed state, left scrotal temperature was higher, significantly higher than right scrotal temperature. Hmm. Now, why is this? They, they offered a number of possible explanations, including differences in blood flow and cutaneous heat receptors, uh, bilateral differences in testicular volume, and so if like one testicle is bigger than the other, that mm-hmm. might also affect temperature, but then finally— uh, one thing they, they pointed out as a possible explanation is the resting position of the penis, hmm. which really seems to naturally go more one to one side than the other. And they cite a study from 1997 by uh, Bogart et al. that found that the penis is naturally positioned to the left in about 89 percent of cases. Interesting.
1: So really it was an inside job the whole time. <laughs> <laughs> it seems very likely to be.
0: Uh, This
1: study is really interesting too and then it's looking at like the clothed human and the naked human especially Mm -hmm. because you really have to think at times like how – how, to what extent does clothing, you know, change the definition of uh, of the biological human experience,
0: you know? Oh, sure. I mean, clothing is a technological innovation. It comes mm-hmm. fairly recently in our evolutionary history. And it's reasonable to say this might somewhat change our reproductive behaviors and, right. uh, and how the body's reproductive organs respond to the environment. So, like, part of the environment our bodies were shaped for might not necessarily be uh, having, like, the testicles. Tightly packed against the body within some kind of container all the time.
1: Right, right.
0: Though, though, I mean,
1: th- to our credit, like that—that that I think was a huge accomplishment. Like, yeah. <laughs> if you think back to a time when when human, if, you know, human beings did not have underwear, mm-hmm. meaning they did not have as much control on like how tightly bound parts of their body were to their person. These are things that can get in the way of, say, chasing after prey or doing, you know, any kind of
0: physical activity. Sure. But then so, random, so you're saying there are pluses and minuses.
1: I think so, yeah. But then, uh, the, you know, the other side is like the human body, the testicles have evolved uh, so that they are, there is a self-regulation of temperature. Mm-hmm. Uh, the scrotum is supposed to be the one in charge of how closely compact the testicles are, not the individual who picks out their underwear in the morning. Right. So obviously this is a study we, – we can all identify why this study is hilarious mm-hmm. because it's dealing with French postmen uh, with or without their underwear on and temperature uh, differences and between one testicle and the other. Bus
0: drivers too. Yes. It's, it's even funnier actually if you start reading into the, like their full explanation of their methods because they talk about – uh, like the methods that are used to determine testicular volume, there are like units of measure for that, and mm-hmm. I think like special a special apparatus. Uh, <laughs> some it's called like an orchidometer or something. This like that. This is the probe
1: that was mentioned. Uh,
0: no, I think that I think the orchidometer. I might it's be it's getting that up word to the probe wrong. Probe, right. It's something like that. It's to measure testicular volume. Oh, okay, I don't know exactly what the deal with the probe was. The, they didn't like have a diagram that mm-hmm. I found.
1: But still, again, this gets down to
0: human biology, uh, reproductive systems. So uh, it is an important study. Sure. I mean, as we said at the beginning, a testicular temperature is reproductively significant. This could be useful in a clinical setting when studying things about fertility.
1: Right. I mean, it's not impossible to imagine it could Influence underwear design in the future, hmm. either either reasonably so with you know a situation where a doctor is saying like okay we it makes more sense for both testicles to be the same temperature so we're going to create underwear in which the penis is positioned uh, out of the way of the testicles, or perhaps more likely you have a situation where somebody who just wants to sell some underwear looks at this study and starts saying, hey, you don't want to be one of those asymmetrical testicle temperature people. You want to have both testicles the same temperature. And the only way you're going to do that is by buying this special pair of $30 underwear.
0: Well, uh, against that person's marketing concerns, uh, I think the study found that while the – I think the major differences were when people were clothed, but there also were were some asymmetries even when people were naked, depending on like what position Mm. they were in.
1: All right. Well, on that note, we're going to take another break. But when we come back, we will discuss diaper changing machines.
0: All right. We're back. Why does the idea of a mechanical diaper changer horrify me?
1: Yes. uh, It it horrifies me, and yet it is also, I think, a a grand
0: goal in human technology. Uh Uh, yeah, it's had, kind of utopian. It's like at the same time enticing and terrifying.
1: It's a thing that you want, but you know you should not have. Uh, <laughs> it is the very sort of thing that uh, Jeff Goldblum's character in Jurassic Park uh, would be irate over. Right? They they were so concerned with whether or not they could, they didn't stop to think if they should. Exactly. So uh, I've changed a few diapers in my time, and uh, and I, I think I've even wondered about the possibility of a robo- robotic diaper changer. It's the kind of thing you fantasize about. As you are essentially wrestling uh, with an infant or a toddler, and you know, especially the infant, trying to 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 get a the foul diaper off of them, mm-hmm. all the while keeping them from, say, getting their own foot into the poop, <laughs> uh, or and, and then flinging the poop on the wall with said foot, oh. uh, trying to avoid being peed upon, uh, especially if it's a boy, and then if there's a girl, there are other concerns about about where and where you don't want poop. It, it, it's it is a, a high—you know, we talked before about how driving is a cognitively demanding task. Yes. Changing a baby's diaper is a cognitively demanding task. I believe it. And, uh, and so you, you, you fantasize. You think, I really wish a robot could come in here and do this. But on the other hand, I don't think a robot could. And I feel like this has also been—I feel like the Jetsons probably had a, a diaper-changing robot. I could find no evidence of it, but I feel like this idea has also worked its way into fiction in the past. Sure. And so at this year's Ig Nobel's, the engineering prize, in fact, went to Iranian inventor— Iman of Farabakash uh, for inventing a diaper changing machine for use on human infants. Wow. Now this is a patent. Uh, it's US patent number one zero zero three four five eight two, granted on july thirty first, twenty eighteen. And I'm going to read to you from the abstract. Quote. A washer and diaper-changing apparatus includes a main chamber, a glass window, a seat, a leg holder, a safety belt, a diaper-removing arm, a sprinkler, and a dryer. The main chamber is configured to receive an infant therein. The glass window is placed on a top wall of the main chamber. The seat is movably coupled to the main chamber and configured for placement of the infant on the seat. The leg holder is movably coupled to the main chamber and configured to support at least one leg of the infant. The safety belt is coupled to the seat and configured to retain the infant on the seat. The sprinkler is placed inside the main chamber and configured to spray water to wash at least a portion of the infant. At least a portion of the infant. Yes, like some to, I guess, all of the infant.
0: Why why am, why am I picturing those like uh, sealed up self-cleaning public bathrooms they've got in some places? Like oh, I yeah. came across these in Switzerland. Oh, I don't know. I've seen one of these. Uh, it's like a public bathroom you go in. It's a small little building and then you use the toilet and then when you're done, like the door shuts and like a light comes on outside and it says like cleaning. Oh, wow. That sounds remarkable. Yeah. I guess there are little robotic, I don't know, sprayers and wipers and stuff in there. I don't know what happens on the inside. I couldn't see.
1: Oh, surely somebody has has trapped themselves and found out. I should hope so. Uh, I have to admit what it made me think of was the uh, surgery pod in the sci-fi horror film Prometheus.
0: Uh, a horrifying scene, but I think actually one of the most effective parts of the movie.
1: Oh, yeah, yeah. It, because uh, if you haven't seen it, basically the idea is that it is a surgery pod created for a specific – Male individual mm-hmm. and uh, an elderly individual and, and is supposed to take care of any needs that that individual has. And then our heroine in the film eventually has to use it to remove a xenomorph from herself. But she's having to sort of uh, uh, improvise with the machine and it's terrifying. Uh, just uh, like Not so much even – I mean certainly it's terrifying when the thing starts cutting into her but just her climbing into it realizing what's about to happen uh, makes for some some great sci-fi horror. Yeah. Uh, so, yes, I thought about that throughout reading this patent. However, the patent does have some sketches. And <laughs> when you look at them, it, the design looks less like a high-tech surgery pod and more like a washing machine or an oven.
0: A dishwasher, yeah. Yeah,
1: yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah uh, a dishwasher, not a washing machine. Yeah, it's like a front loader. Right. It doesn't have a spin cycle for right. the infant. <laughs> not this this version. Maybe a future model will. So... Um, uh, Iman uh, uh, Farabakhash is an associate professor of Islamic Azad University in Iran, and his uh, engineering research involves nanostructures and nanoparticles. So, he's, so this is a legit uh, engineer uh, here that has developed this, uh, and here's a little more from his patent. Quote, the apparatus may be said to be automatic in some implementations, in that once the infant is placed inside the apparatus, various steps may in some cases be carried out automatically without needing the... The operator to touch the infant or interact manually with the diaper or infant during the changing process, which may create a more sanitary environment for the ambient area and the operator's hands. So I, uh, I looked for more background on this concept, and I, I wasn't able to find much to really shed light on just, like, how serious he is with the proposal. As in, you know, not, as in, is he, does he seriously see this as a place our technology will get to within a human lifespan? Or is this more of a sort of an engineering thought experiment? Like, mm-hmm. if you could create a, this thing that we sometimes fantasize about existing, how might we go about it? What might an apparatus like that look like?
0: sure because i mean again uh, uh, jokes aside as you mentioned earlier on it, it is a job that people really probably would like to outsource if they felt they could do it safely
1: and if it if it is a thought experiment though it is kind of a perfect thing to think about when contemplating The idea of having machines that operate alongside humans or upon humans in a human environment, Mm -hmm. Uh, because I I can think of, of very few examples of such a highly sensitive and specialized job for a machine than changing the diaper of an infant. Because granted, we desire a mechanical baby changer because number one, it's a gross job. Number two, it can be challenging or frustrating to do. And number
0: three, it absolutely has to be done. Yeah, it, it is a job that is in extremely high demand and nobody wants to do. And certainly we've already thrown
1: machines at jobs that fit all three of these bullet points, such as sewer cleaning robots, uh, you know, creating some sort of a, a mechanical uh, device that goes through a, like a pipe and helps clean it out, or at mm-hmm. least go down there and look and see what the, the, the clog might be. But I, there's far less Less risk in cleaning a sewer, right? Right. Yeah. Unlike a clog in a city sewer system, a human infant is one the most valuable thing in your life. Right. Uh, number two, it's afforded legal protection. Like, it is a person, uh-huh. and if you if you don't take care of it correctly, uh, you could go to prison. And uh, also, it's susceptible to pain and injury. Getting more into the personhood part, like this is uh, this this is a human child and not a sewer clog. However, like a clog, the baby is limited in its ability to fend for itself, which, mm-hmm. which I think also ties into the horror of letting the machine have a go at the diaper. Right now, granted, we already live in an age of robot-assisted surgery, uh, such as various you know prostate surgeries. But in these cases, we're talking about. The machine having an advantage in, a, in its ability to use tiny instruments that humans would uh, would have, uh, you know, a little more difficulty operating. Mm-hmm. And then there's also going to be a human operator in the room for those. And I guess presumably with this diaper changing device, the language of it t- t- tends to imply that it's sort of hands off, or it could be hands off. Mm-hmm. The robotic baby changer, however, it doesn't really benefit from tiny tools. It doesn't really have an advantage over human hands or more specifically, uh, a human ability to roll with what is often a puzzle. Again, how to wipe the poop without the child getting a foot in the poop, how not to be peed upon, how to keep the child from rolling over, grabbing the diaper and flinging it, etc. Uh, if you've ever performed this task, you know that a lot of things can go wrong and will go wrong on the diaper changing table.
0: Yeah, I mean, I see a huge difference here in that like, robot-assisted surgery is not for the purpose of allowing the doctor to not have to do the surgery. Right. It's to, like, increase the doctor's capabilities. Yeah, to, to increase increase the efficiency
1: of the surgery. Yeah. And I do not see a way in which having the machine involved improves the efficiency of changing a baby's diaper. As such, I would say that this sort of machine seems to me to be more of a, an end game of robotics because creating machines that can work alongside us in human habitats, that's challenging work. It's, it's hard to imagine a more challenging place uh, than, the, than the diaper changing station to throw a machine. Uh, That's, you know, one of the reasons perhaps that he was pursuing the patent, you know, kind of, again, kind of a mechanical thought experiment. And it does serve as as an interesting way to discuss home robotics.
0: I mean, I I think this highlights interesting questions about the future of robotics and and – it reveals our intuitions that are, that are already there about like what are the kinds of places we're least comfortable with allowing uh, robots to be implemented. I mean, even if you came up with a pretty good robotic system that worked pretty much all the time, people still probably might just not feel comfortable with like allowing robotic arms to be moving around near their near their baby, right? Right. Uh, um, Trevor
1: like one of for, my
0: for very understandable reasons.
1: Yeah, like like one of my I think a very uh, positive area of, of robot exploration is in elder care, particularly in among uh, Japanese robotics companies. in mm-hmm. uh, that case too, you know, you're looking at a you know, aging population with fewer uh, individuals to look after them, mm-hmm. and also you're dealing with environments where if, for instance, if you need help getting up and down from a toilet. Uh, which is something that, you know, that, that can and will happen uh, with, uh, with individuals of advanced age. That might be the kind of situation where you would say, yes, I would prefer to have a robotic helper with, to engage with me in a situation like that. Sure. However, you know, you're still dealing with, you know, you know a rational individual and not a complete infant mm-hmm. uh, who again, it just it, so many problems come to mind when you imagine just sticking the baby inside of the diaper changing uh device and letting it do its thing. Like best case scenario you put the baby in and you just get an error message. It's like trying to operate any printer. Uh-huh. where All you want to do is, is get this one thing done, but there are a million things that can and do go wrong and you just end up having to do something else. Change the diaper yourself in this case.
0: Oh, with printers, I think we've talked about this on the show before, haven't we? That like printers seem to follow an inverse law of technological advancement where mm-hmm. like as most technology becomes better and better and more and more user-friendly, printers always go in the opposite direction. Like Every year they get worse and more (laughs) incompatible with everything.
1: Oh, yeah. The last time I went to buy one, I was thinking, you know, Apple makes pretty good uh, uh, computers. I Uh bet they make a pretty good printer. I'm going to buy that printer. I don't care if it's overpriced. And of course, they they don't make a printer. They're printers that are compatible with their machines. But it's almost as if they're like, no, we're not touching that. That's just too complicated. It'd
0: be bad for our brand to have a printer. (laughs) (laughs) We'll do the printer when we do the
1: baby changing robot. All right. So uh, we're going to go ahead and call it there because, let's see, we covered poop. Uh-huh. We covered- More poop. More poop, scrotums. Uh, uh, bacteria you might associate with poop. Right. Uh, yeah. The, the diaper, robots, uh, really it's just a good haul overall. Now, once again, we did not cover all of the winners here.
0: Uh, uh, we didn't even list them. There were some more interesting ones. There was one about the health effects of eating pizza, specifically Italian pizza made yes. in Italy. I Does think.
1: it prevent cancer, I believe. was the <laughs> That one got picked up in the, in the media a lot.
0: Yeah. Uh, there's another one that I think we want to return to at some point, just as a follow-up to an episode we did earlier this year about the facial feedback hypothesis. Yes. And this had to do with the psychologists involved in early research on the facial feedback Hypothesis, participating in failed replications of their own work, and and that leads to an interesting bigger discussion about, uh, you know the the role like how you communicate scientific uh, validity and and whether effects are quote real or not. Uh, so so that's worth revisiting, I think.
1: Absolutely. If you want to check out the full list of 2019 winners, in fact, if you want to check out the full list of all winners from the very beginning of the Ig Nobels, head on over to www.improbable.com. That's, of course, uh, Improbable Research. Uh, they're the, the publication that puts out the awards each and every year. And uh, if you want to check out past episodes of Stuff to Blow Your Mind, uh, go check out our past Ig Nobel Prize episodes because, again, we've been doing them every year. We always – sometimes we cover all the winners. Sometimes we cover just a, a selection of the winners. Mm-hmm. Uh, but with, without fail, they always highlight some, some wonderful studies that also uh, uh, invoke laughter.
0: Every year, it's Frankalicious. They make you laugh. They make you think. Yes.
1: <laughs> yeah. And if you want to check out all those episodes, stuff dot com is the website. If you want to check out our other podcast, inventionpod.com is the place to find Invention, a journey through human techno history. Uh, I believe, what, it's November right now. We're doing a lot of food-related inventions over at Invention, including canning, which uh, which is really fascinating. You You take it for granted, but canning technology is amazing.
0: No doubt, check it out. Huge thanks, as always, to our excellent audio producer, Seth Nicholas Johnson. If you would like to get in touch with us with feedback on this episode or any other, to suggest a topic for the future, or just to say hello, you can email us at contact at stufftoblowyourmind.com.